We've been walking through 1 Corinthians, and we're calling this Redeeming the Church. If you were here last weekend, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and depending on which worship service you attended, you might have heard a sermon by uh, my good friend Jay Lee. He's one of our pastors, and um, I so appreciated how he leveraged my competitiveness and Enneagram 3 hatred of losing, especially when it comes to sports, in order to make uh, a really helpful illustration to prove his point. Thank you, Jay, for taking the high road on that one and finding the perfect sermon illustration. But we looked at what uh, some people consider really the life verse of the Apostle Paul. Here's what Paul writes. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. And I want to spend just a few more minutes uh, looking back at this, uh, partly because it's had me thinking a lot about our story as a church. I'm not sure if there's a better life verse uh, to describe the 96 years of Highland Park Church than this one. We have become all things to all people. To this community where God planted us, we've become a neighborhood church. To this fast-growing metroplex that has grown up around us, we have become a church for the city, in the heart of the city. To that university three blocks down the road, uh, we have become a place where college students can explore faith and ask questions and grow in their love for God and get free food and find a home away from home. We've become one with families through our amazing day school and with families who are raising children with learning differences through our Hillier School. Then reaching more in, into our past um, in order to serve and bless and provide community for, for the oldest generations, we helped to build Presbyterian Village. In order to care for the sick and the hurting in our city, members of our church helped to found a Presbyterian hospital for the city. To reach people no one was reaching, we, we, we joined in evangelistic movements like Explo 72, and we helped produce maybe the most effective gospel-proclaiming tool in history, the Jesus Film. Then as Dallas welcomed more and more immigrants from more countries from around the world, we became a church for all nations. We became Mandarin speakers in order to reach the growing Chinese community. We become a place where people can bring their anxieties and their worries and their emotional and mental health struggles, and we will walk with them as they find healing. We've come alongside the poor and those without a home as, through our work with, with Austin Street Center. We have stood in solidarity with neighbors who want to see drug houses shut down and, and streets that are safe enough for their kids to play on as we link arms with Act Dallas. We have become all things to all people to share the hope of Jesus. But here's the thing, and those of you who lead organizations and businesses, you know this, past performance is no guarantee of future greatness. And what may have worked 20 years ago, or forget that, even two years ago, might not have the same impact in reaching people today. And just ask the owners of Peloton about that. Or the shake weight. I don't know if people are still using that. But past performance is no guarantee of future greatness, which has got me thinking about my own leadership. It was eight years ago this week that I was installed as a pastor here. I'm now in my ninth year. I'm not the new guy anymore. Some of the changes that we made when I first came in 2014, they're now kind of old hat. And we're having to, they might need to be rethought. And sadly, what so many churches settle for, especially mainline institutional churches that have been around for, I don't know, a hundred years or so, sometimes we fall into this practice of what the Apostle Paul calls shadow boxing. 
like a boxer beating the air, he says. And I'll never forget hearing this word of caution from my mentor, Vic Pence, how often churches settle for this. Even when we're not connecting, when our punches aren't landing, we keep on doing the same thing. It's a great image of boxing the air. What often happens in a church is that we land a punch and it really connects. And we're like, wow, that ministry or that program or that initiative, look at the impact. It had such a huge impact. And we hear the, the roar of the crowd and, and we watch the opponent stagger and we think, let's do that again. Bam. And we connect a second time and again, the crowd loves it. And so we do it again and again and again. But here's the brilliance of what Paul is painting here. Boxing is an archery where the target stands still. In boxing, the opponent bobs and weaves and moves back and forth. It would be idiotic to keep throwing the exact same punch in the exact same place. And yet so often, that's what we do in the church. We go through the same old motions long after they've lost their impact. Does that illustration make sense? Or do I need to throw another punch here? <laughs> now part of this, at least for me, is that throwing the same punch over and over again is more comfortable. It's easier. We get used to it. I don't want to have to learn new techniques. Let's just do what we've always been doing. That's easier. But here's the thing. If we settle for what we've always been doing, we are not going to reach the people that no one else is reaching. So what are some of the new punches for us here at Highland Park Prez? Let me share one big one. You go back five years ago, and really for the almost 100 years of our existence, this church has been one congregation in one location here on University Boulevard. But over the last five years, we've been sending out gifted leaders and devoted followers of Jesus from this campus to launch new communities in new parts of our city. These are new congregations, all as part of one Highland Park Presbyterian Church that are led by incredible pastors and leaders who were shaped in this church. And they've gone out, and now we have these new beachheads for the kingdom in neighborhoods like Old East Dallas and Lake Highlands, and as of today, Oak Cliff. Our elders have been praying and planning for this for more than a year now. And so to reach the neighborhood of Oak Cliff, we have become Birkenstock-wearing, pour-over, craft-coffee-drinking, vinyl-record-playing, succulent-plant-loving hipsters who love Jesus and love the neighborhood of Oak Cliff. And today is the first official worship service of Good Shepherd Oak Cliff. Um, this is a picture of the place where they're gathering, and, and this may or may not work, but um, we just got a little clip. Um, from moments ago in their first worship service, but you can see what's happening at Good Shepherd Oak Cliff. We're so thankful for Alex and Andrew Franklin, and I know that we've got a lot of folks who went just to be celebrating and to cheer them on. By the way, Andrew is not the only church planner that we're launching today, uh, the only pastor we're launching today, and this is so cool. I had to share it with you. Earlier this week, we had the privilege as a staff team of praying over um, our dear friend Everett Pearson. He's in the blue shirt there, and he's been on our staff for the last year plus on our facilities team. Well, he has recently been called to be the new lead pastor of Graceland Community Church, and he is preaching his first sermon to his new congregation in Cedar Hill as we speak right now. So we've been sending out leaders and planting new congregations 
partly because we don't think the strategy of, hey, let's just invite people here and let's just get bigger and bigger mega church right here in University Park, we're not as convinced that that's going to be as effective anymore. And so we've had to change our strategy in order to reach people for Jesus. Now, eight years ago, if you would have asked me if this was possible, I'd have said, no way. We don't have the resources. We don't have the leaders. We can't lose all these people. One of the greatest fears along the way, I've certainly had this, had this emotion. If we send all these people out, won't we lose momentum here at Highland Park? And what about the talent drain of losing all these gifted leaders like Cameron Beatty and Charlie Dunn and now Andrew Franklin? And to that, I would say we are not losing anything. We are launching and every time we open our hands and send someone out, God seems to provide another young, gifted, emerging leader. It's funny how that works in the economy of God's kingdom. And right now we have a deep bench of gifted, growing, deeply abiding in Jesus, women and men who will serve the church with abandon. And you want to know one of the reasons why they're drawn to working here? It's because they see how willing we are to launch people out. So whether it's a church or it's your life, or my life, we have to keep asking God, what, what are some of the new ways that you're inviting us to bring the same unchanging message of the gospel into our city and beyond? It won't be easy. It won't be comfortable. Paul says when it comes to following Jesus, becoming a lifelong apprentice of Jesus, he says we, we don't just box the air, we don't run around aimlessly, we run in such a way as to win the prize. We go into training. We discipline our bodies. Gordon MacDonald, in his book, The Resilient Life, uh, quotes from Neil Bascom, who wrote The Perfect Mile. It's about those three runners who were trying to break the four-minute mile back in the 1950s. And here's what Bascom writes, and I want you to see this. These runners endured thousands of hours of training to shape their bodies and minds. They ran more miles in a year than many of us walk in a lifetime. They spent a large part of their youth struggling for breath. They trained week after week to the point of collapse, all to shave off a second, maybe two, during a mile race, the time it takes to snap one fingers and register the sound. There were sleepless nights and training sessions in rain, sleet, snow, and scorching heat. There were times when they wanted to go out for a beer or a date, yet knew they couldn't. They, understand, they understood that life was somehow different for them, that idle happiness eluded them. If they weren't training or racing or gathering the will required for those efforts, they were trying not to think about training or racing at all. It's this picture of the disciplined life in which one's purpose has become so singular that we are willing to devote body and mind and to give every ounce of effort and energy and thought and every breath. This writer goes on to say, when you look at the top two or three percent of people in business or the arts or science or medicine or law or parenting or basket weaving, these are disciplined people with intensities similar to those three runners. And now just imagine with me a community of women and men with that kind of singular commitment to Jesus. Imagine if we were to catch that singular focus of helping people find and follow Jesus and we all start training and running in the same direction. It won't be easy. Think about Paul trying to be all things for all people. Right? He says to the Jews, I became like a Jew. And what happened? The Jews tried to kill him. 
He says, to the Gentiles, I became like a Gentile. And, and what do they do? They put chains around his ankles and they sent him into jail. Right? And yet in the end, was it worth it? Here's what Paul says at the end of his race. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will award to me on that day. So here's where I would suggest this lands for us today as we open up 1 Corinthians 10. One of the things an athlete sacrifices in the midst of their training is freedom. Right? Think about the cost of committing to strict training and all the things that, that, that you don't get to do. I was talking with a guy in our church about his experience of being a collegiate swimmer. How when everyone else was, you know, sleeping off the fun that they had had the previous night at the Fiji house or whatever, he was already two miles into a 5,000-yard swim at 6 o'clock in the morning, and then he'd do it all again in the afternoon. It's the kind of person who is willing to give up certain freedoms in order to live a disciplined life because they are focused on something greater. So let's look at how Paul wraps up this part of his letter in 1 Corinthians 10. It's page 1218 of that Bible there in front of you, and it'll be real helpful if you were to open up to that, page 1218. As you're opening up your Bible, um, just a teaser for next week, when we turn the page from chapter 10 to chapter 11, uh, we're going to have to dive right back into one of the more controversial, hot topic, lightning rod texts in all the New Testament. Not looking forward to it, but we're going to go there, and you're going to have to come back next week for that. Josh, do you want to preach next week? So chapter 10, beginning in verse 23, here's what Paul writes. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Here he's quoting what some of the Christians in Corinth have been saying. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And just a quick word about that word neighbor. It's the Greek word heteros, which literally means the other. Seek the good of the other. See, neighbor kind of suggests that you've got something in common. There's a proximity you share something in common with them. Other, which I think is the better translation, it, it kind of it means that they're different. They're not like me. Right? It's one thing to serve your neighbor. It is something else to seek the good of the person who is other from you, different than you, who sees the world differently than you and believes differently and looks different or talks different or maybe votes differently than you. Paul says, seek their good above your own. Verse 25, he continues, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience, unless such, such items are laden with mayonnaise. That's the Dunnigan translation. Verse 28, However, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. Now, just a quick note that the emphasis here is not on being a constant people pleaser. Like, I just need to make everyone happy so that they like me and think well of me and never make decisions that people aren't going to like. That's not what Paul's after here. That's certainly not how he lived out his life. He was never bashful about the gospel. But if people were going to be offended, he wanted it to be the gospel that offended and not him. And so he goes on, and we'll end with this. Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So here Paul returns once more to this apparently controversial topic of food or meat sacrifice to idols. Now obviously this is not the ethical quandary for us today that it was for them 2,000 years ago. We don't have to worry about whether the bacon wrapped filet at Dunstan's that we're going to have for lunch is gonna, was offered to Zeus or something like that, right? Have you ever had the bacon wrapped filet at Dunstan's? It's pretty good. This might be a good place to go to lunch here in just a few minutes. But how do we steward our freedom in Christ when it comes to how we deal with money or the things we buy or what kinds of culture and media should we be listening to and and consuming or allowing our children to engage with or what about social behaviors or whether it's okay to drink alcohol or whether it would be honoring for me to wear a burnt orange tie to church today, even though I have that freedom, it might be a stumbling block for someone else, and so I'm not going to do it. Whatever the scenario, hypothetically, the question, according to Paul, is not, what am I free to do, but how in doing this am I seeking the good of the other? Am I doing this in love? So let me briefly try to give an overview of this text, because it's really compelling when we zoom out and see what Paul's trying to accomplish here. There's a scholar named Ken Bailey who lived and taught New Testament his entire life in the Middle East. And so he reads and interprets the New Testament like a Middle Easterner would. And he says that the Apostle Paul, what he does here in this passage is actually quite brilliant. It's confusing to the modern reader. I don't know if you were, we were walking through this and you're like, he seems to be going back and forth here. Can I eat the meat or not? Just tell me. But for the first century audience that Paul wrote this letter to, they would understand, they would see what Paul is getting at here. So basically, here's what Paul says, and I want want you to see the structure here. And some of you I know, you geek out about this, others not so much, but I got to use different punches here. So here's the structure. In verses 25 and 26, Paul says, eat the meat, everything is the Lord's. Then in verse 27, he says, eat whatever is set before you. You're free to do that. But then in verse 28, he says, do not eat out of concern for the other. Well, then in verses 29 and 30, he goes back in the other direction and he says, eat with thankfulness and gratitude in your hearts for for what God has given you. And then finally in verse 31, eat and, and, and do it all to the glory of God. And you're like, what am I supposed to do with this? Okay, this is not a very Western way of communicating. We're more direct, like just say it. Or maybe if we're being a little more nuanced, it's like, well, on the one hand, you need to think about this, but on the other hand, there's this. And that's the way we might build the argument. But Paul, Paul is using here this ring or chiastic structure where the whole point of, of, of what he's saying, the climax, the center, is, 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 is the heart is what's in the very center. And a first century Middle Eastern listener would be hearing this likely read out loud, and and, and there would be a point at which they go, oh, 
I see it. I get it. Here, that's, that's what he's trying to say. The climactic center focuses in that moment on what does love require you to do? And it may require you to lay down your freedom to do what you know you are free to do. So here's the setting. Paul says you've been invited to a meal in the home of someone who is not a follower of Jesus. And during the meal, someone leans over to you, presumably another Christian, and they sort of whisper into your ear, hey, I think this meat might be sacrificed to idols. Now, assume that the person who just shared this with you shared it because they themselves are still struggling with whether or not to eat the meat. Maybe they're a newer Christian. Maybe they're having a hard time letting go of the, 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 the purity laws and the legalistic background of their past. Like if I eat this meat, I might be slipping back into rebellion against God and losing his affection and his grace and his love. And because, because of what love requires, Paul says, I want you to go out of your way to do something that you know in your own heart and conscience doesn't really matter before God. Be willing to lay that right down, even for the possibility that it might help your neighbor in their struggle. So to sort of sum this up here, what does Paul say here? He says, you are free to enjoy all that God has made, even meet sacrifice to fake idols, do it with gratitude, do it to the glory of God, unless, unless, unless love requires you to lay down that freedom for the other. Love has to be at the center. Do you see that? Love, uh, freedom, and I'm stealing this line from Ken Bailey, freedom must be marinated with love. Marinated with love, which don't you like what he did there, a text about meat? Freedom must be marinated in love. You'll figure that out in the parking lot. In another letter that he wrote to the Galatians, here's what Paul says. You were called to freedom. Don't you forget that you were called to freedom and that you've been set free in Christ. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Paul will not sacrifice love on the altar of freedom. And we've been wrestling with this over the last few weeks in 1 Corinthians, we who live in this culture that has so elevated the virtue of personal freedom over everything else, that for some, even the notion of submitting my own individual liberty out of love and for the good of someone else is seen as naive and weak. And I don't want to derail us here, but think back. Think back over the past two plus years and the public conversations around things like like masking. It doesn't matter what side of that you're on or any of that, but this whole idea of personal liberty, it, it strikes a nerve. I can feel that it, can, it strikes a nerve with us. It certainly does for me. And yet Paul lays out this way forward for the Corinthians who have stumbled into this glorious freedom in Christ that as they become disciples of Jesus, he is inviting them in their newfound freedom to live a cruciform life, a life that is patterned after and lived under the shadow of a Roman cross where love means we will lay down everything, surrender everything, even our own freedom. And so the better question, and we'll close with this, the better question is not, what does freedom entitle me? but what does love require of me? It's not what does freedom entitle me, but what does love require of me? So, how about you? 
How's this playing out in your life? And where might God be inviting you as you seek to make Jesus your first and greatest priority to run after him in such a way as to win the prize? Is there some place where God may be inviting you to lay down what you are free to do in order to love? And if we can figure this out together, unstoppable what God could do. Jesus is calling us to a better way. That's why 1 Corinthians 13 has captured the human race for 2,000 years now. Paul doesn't write, if I speak of the tongues of men and of angels, but have not freedom, I'm just a clanging symbol. Faith, hope, and liberty, these three remain, but the greatest is liberty. No, the greatest is love. It's love. So let's just take a moment to pray around this. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter and these words that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write, and not just for these Corinthians, but for us today. Speak to us, Holy Spirit. Where are you calling me, God, maybe to lay something I, I know that I'm entitled to because you've given us that freedom, but is there some place or some practice or maybe even the way that I spend my time. And maybe you're calling me to lay that down, to, to lift up someone else, to serve someone else, to move toward the other, humbly in love. Would you continue to lead us into the way of Jesus, the life that is shaped by the cross, even as we continue in worship? Amen.